Hello, my name's Chris Coe, and this is a Newton Co. podcast. Today we have a very special guest, but before we introduce him, I'm going to pass you over to my co-host David Newton to introduce himself. Thank you, Chris. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, as Chris said, another Newton and Co. podcast for Eye for the Light. Uh, and indeed, we do have a very interesting guest today with a very interesting story. His name may be familiar to you because he has done some pretty epic work, but certainly, as we're going to find out, his start in the industry was also pretty epic with a name that will almost certainly be familiar to you. So I'll let Chris lead off. <laughs> so today's guest is Chris Rainier. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. Great pleasure to be here. So let's start with your amazing introduction to the world of photography. Um, you were Ansel Adams' last assistant, <coughs> I believe. That's correct. How did you get that gig? My mother's check made it through. In other words, she <laughs> paid him lots of money. Um, I was going to photography school in, in Santa Barbara, California. It's Brooks Institute of Photography, a, a great school. And yet I felt like um, it was a dealing with the technical aspect of photography, but not the soul, not the heart. And um, I had admired Ansel Adams' great black and white photographs, of course, of the American landscape, Yosemite, Yellowstone, Grand Canyon. And um, I read that he was doing a series of workshops in Yosemite, uh, and I signed up for it, and uh, it was fairly close to the time I was soon to graduate from the photography school, so I packed up my little Volkswagen van and headed from Santa Barbara up into Yosemite. I had never been in Yosemite, and first thing that struck me when I drove into the valley was like, wow, it's in color, because, <laughs> of course, Ansel's work is all about black and white. So that was the first thing I learned from Ansel. Um, remarkable workshop all about the soul, about the heart, why why do we photograph. The realization that Ansel Adams was an artist, was an art photographer, but used his photographs for social cause. And of course that was the preservation and, and protection of the National Park Service. So I got to know Ansel during the workshop. We had some remarkable conversations and and so near the end of the workshop I asked him can I bring my portfolio and show you in a couple of weeks and he said sure come on up to Carmel Carmel Highlands up the coast northern end of Big Sur where he was living laid out the images in front of him several weeks later and and he went mm -hmm. and what what are you young man doing after you graduate and I realized this was one of those pivotal moments where your entire life is you know on a Y on the road and I said working for you and he just cracked up and I went oh I probably overstepped the boundary and he said why not see you in two weeks Wow! and all of a sudden several weeks later we were at the White House photographing Jimmy Carter doing his official portrait and um, Ansel was this kind of remarkable Renaissance individual that would invite, he loved having people over. So you never knew who was going to come in the door any one afternoon. So great photographers had a chance to meet Sebastio Segaldo, Mary Ellen Mark, Jim Nakwe for the first time, these remarkable people that I had admired their work. And 
And just to tell you kind of one little side story of who could walk in the door, about a year after I started working for Ansel, this was like 1981, doorbell rang and I walked to the door and opened it up and there was this kind of long-haired guy holding a, a box. And the box said, Apple Macintosh. It was Stephen Jobs there to give Ansel one of his first computers. And that was on a Friday afternoon. And Ansel loved technology. Someone asked me this morning, you know, would he love all of this remarkable um, technology that we're living with today? And I said, absolutely, because Ansel was always, always curious. He, you know, that first weekend he was working away on the computer. And I'm convinced because eventually um, Stephen Jobs would come and spend more and more time with Ansel and they had great conversations and I was a little fly on the wall. I am convinced because of those conversations we have a camera in our smartphones right now. It was the evolution of those conversations. The light bulb went off Stephen Jobs' head and went, why, why can't we put a phone in one of these things? So I always smile with that as I love my... Uh, smartphone and and you see it all over the world so so working with Ansel was quite remarkable it was a, a moment in time and I really learned about art and learned about the use of photography as a social tool I believe he's quite a generous spirit was he also a good teacher he was a very generous spirit he would always um, really insist that everybody pass it on he had no secrets he was a remarkable teacher. He created the Zone System, of course, did a series of technical books, those workshops uh, where he would bring the world's top photographers together and a teaching environment. And, you know, Ansel did remarkable things. I remember the president of Kodak being there for one of these cocktail hours. And, you know, right away Ansel said, now you must look at my young assistant's portfolio. Uh, and this was the president of Kodak. He just was so generous. And I think you look at the great, not only photographers, but great artists, great musicians, and what you'll see there is a generous heart, someone who just wants to pass it on and teach. And, you know, we were just in Las Vegas about four weeks ago, and I love Carlos Santana's music, and he was playing, and you can clearly see that he's just full of love and wants to pass it on, and he has a whole system where he's teaching people how to, to play guitar, and I just think the great ones pass it on. And, and you drive into Yosemite, and it was in color, and Ansel works in black and white, so how did that influence your early photography? Did you stick with black and white? Did you move to color? Very good question. Um, I feel, here I'm 62, 63, I'm only just beginning to work in color. I've predominantly been a black and white photographer. Now, I've done a lot of assignment work for Time magazine and National Geographic and various magazines in color, but I never felt that I was a mature color photographer. So the work that I've been doing in the last 10 years is just, I'm just beginning to understand the psychology of color and use it. So um, certainly when I, I met Ansel, and uh, I've always loved the power of black and white photography. And so I'm sort of of the philosophy now that it depends on what my message is. You know, deep sort of spiritual 
images that that speak of things in our subconscious. I love using black and white, but there's also beauty to color as well. So it's a combination of both. Do you think that maybe people step into color photography too soon based on you saying you've had this incredible career and only just now you feel you're ready or able to use color properly, cerebrally, I guess. Would yeah. be the way. Do you think people just automatically jump into color because it's so available and maybe everyone needs to take a step back? Well, I think along the way, what I learned from art school was, you know, learn the psychology of color. You see someone, for example, like Steve McCurry and the most accessible accessible image to speak of is the Afghani girl. The psychology of green and red together does something remarkable to our brain and I think Steve has an incredible ability to to seek out, maybe on a subconscious level, uh, a certain color palette and I think there's nothing wrong with being a color photographer or a young color photographer but know your tools. You know the power of there's a great book that I read in art school, The Psychology of Color. It's like, get to know this palette that you're using so you can control, and I use this word cautiously, not so much manipulate your audience, just completely be in control of your message. So it's not only what you're looking at and the sense of design, but it's the color palette. Know if you want a certain emotional reaction from your audience, well, you can do that with the power of the psychology of color. It's, it's ironic, really, because when we started, I'm a similar age to you, we started with black and white because right. it was cheap. Yes. And we could process the film ourselves. Now with digital cameras, people start with a digital camera, which is they think of color first and then, oh, maybe I'll apply the black and white filters. If you started now, do you think you'd be shooting different stuff? No, I think I'm always sort of driven by what do I want to say and then I find the toys and the tools to bring in. You know, of my generation, I worked, I had two cameras for 20 years. I had a black and white camera and a color camera. Even when I was stationed in Sarajevo for Time magazine for a year, as a contract photographer, I just knew that there were certain things to be done in black and white. So I had that body and then the color body with the, the slides. My mother always used to, in a forlorn way, just said, oh, when are you going to do color? And I said, well, I can't afford it, so I'm doing black and white. So I love both, but I'm also set a standard for myself to be really conscious of why I'm picking color or black and white. You know, we have so many tools, uh, different types of cameras, different um, sort of powerful post-production. Just be really aware of the technology and the responsibility you have to really kind of guide your audience to what, what do you want to say. Ansel Adams once said, there's nothing, nothing worse than a sharp image of a fuzzy concept. <laughs> so know your concept, then find the equipment. Yeah. I find it interesting talking about this because you know, I've been looking around your exhibition and, and some of your recent images on, on Mask, and there's a few that really stood out to me. First, if we deal with the colour stuff, you, you seem to deal in a colour palette that is quite muted. Mm -hmm. It's not 
like a lot of images we see these days, super saturated and vibrant and blowing no. your mind. And that's what I was always terrified, is that sort of Fujichrome look. And so I'm playing around with the line between black and white and color. How close can I step to the line of black and white and it still has some color in it? Because I think that muted color is a, is a space that I want to play in more and more as I grow older. The other aspect, actually, of some of your work is there are some portraits that you've shot that you have on display at the moment that are shot in a way that I see almost nobody else doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking specifically of what I assume, and I might be wrong, is a lens choice you make. Yep, it is. So I'm wondering, A, did that come from things you've learned with Ansel, but I'm assuming it's a tilt-shift lens. It is. There we go. I, I've spoken to a couple of talkers, and a couple of them had no clue what you were doing or how it was done. Yeah. Some just assumed it was a comp. And it, 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 yeah, there are ways to do it in post, but it doesn't have the same feel. Never um, and so for the audience, a tilt-shift uh, lens really radically throws certain parts of the frame um, usually left or right, or if you have the camera vertically, top to bottom. And so I do use it, and I love it. It's very fickled, and 99.9 .9 of the time it doesn't work. And so I've trained myself after a lot of failures is I'll pull that out when I know it's going to work. So the front cover of my book, Mask, is a Bhutanese mask gentleman in a field, and that's with the tilt shift. So it's radically out of focus, but his mask is in focus. And so most of the time it goes terribly wrong, but there are certain places that I use it, and I think it has a good outcome in terms of, you know, I'm always trying to kind of have a slightly dark energy in my images, not dramatically dark, just a slight tint, like not all is well here. And that sort of reflects my feeling about cultural, you know, documentation in general. It's like we are losing these remarkable cultures at a catastrophic rate. So I want to, I want to affirm the beauty, but there's a little edge to it. It's um, it comes quite a revelation to some of our younger listeners that you can do all this stuff in camera rather than in right. post-production. <laughs> I know, what? Um, I've always been a great believer that you get it right in camera yeah. if you can. Yes. And these techniques, they need to be passed on. Do, how, do you teach yourself? Or teach other people, I mean yourself, or is this something that you keep a secret? No, I'm, 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 I, once again, of the philosophy of just pass it on. It's like, you know, and again, the, the, the whole thing about... You need to find your own voice. And for many years, uh, and that was what was so wonderful about the Ansel Adams workshops, but, you know, there's this 10,000-hour concept where you've just got, you've got to log the film. You just have to find your voice. And one of the things I just said in the panel is put off short-term short -term gains for long-term goals. Realize that, you know, in this Instagram world, you're not going to get there right now. But, you know, take some time to find your voice. As many of the great photographers that have presented here over the years, it's like they spent 10, 15 years finding their voice. And that's so important. So, 
you know, there are many things that need to get passed on, but for me that's very, very important. It doesn't matter what f-stop or lens or, or anything like that in the end. It's just go inside, find your voice, it'll take a while, and then follow it. And make sure it's something you're passionate about, too. Yeah. In recent years, uh, you've developed an interest in indigenous cultures. And with your partner, Olivia, you founded the Cultural Sanctuaries Foundation. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, it thank came you. Into being. I have spent my entire life fascinated and passionate about traditional cultures. I grew up, my father was South African. I spent time in Africa. I grew up in Australia. Um, I'm from Canada that has a rich history of traditional culture. So I've always been fascinated with these cultures that are really from our past living in the present. And so I also discovered Edward Curtis's work. This is a great uh, photographer that was alive at the early part of the 20th century. And it's his body of work of the Native Americans that truly show us what that culture was like back then. And I saw a movie once, and it was on uh, Edward Curtis. And the opening scene is this Plains Indian, Cherokee, I think. And he's looking around the cultural center that they had built. And there are Edward Curtis prints everywhere. And he said, it's because of these images that we know now how to do the sun dance. We reference because our culture fell apart and we're putting it back together again. So I see the power of photography to be a footnote for future generations. And I think for me that importance is to document and archive but be a part of revitalizing many of these cultures that are right on the edge, cultures on the edge of changing. So. Olivia and I went to the Paris Climate Accord in 2015. I had been working for the National Geographic for close to 20 years on projects of empowering indigenous people, uh, their storytelling, and I realized, you know, there's a lot of traditional knowledge around conservation, about sustainability and about how we can um, respect uh, the, the nature and Mother Earth much more. So what we do is we go into communities where invited, bring cameras, bring video cameras, and teach workshops around how they can tell their own stories. I often say that, you know, Steve McCurry's Afghani Girl is one of the great classic images of our lifetime. But quite frankly, I love his image, but quite frankly, I, I want to know what the Afghani Ghani girl has to say. So we created a program to empower indigenous people, give them the cameras, let them tell their own stories. And so the Cultural Sanctuaries Foundation is a kind of hub where people can come together in communities, share the information about uh, cultural preservation, but also conservation, and be a part of helping to save the planet, the forests, the oceans. All of those the kind of things. Indigenous uh, people that are threatened. Is this worldwide, or is it in certain parts of the world that you, you tend to encounter more? Um, all over the world. I mean, uh, you know, again, once we were, once again, we were just in Glasgow, and what has really come to light is there are, I, they have identified very specific hot spots 
around the planet that biodiversity must be preserved there or we'll catastrophically cut too much of the rainforest down so there's key places. Well, there's also indigenous cultures there that need help and support and so we're identifying and working with those cultures. Do they tend to be linked to the endangered um, yes, it's a, the, it's, the rainforest, etc.? Yes, it's fascinating. Where biodiversity is saved, it's correlated to culture. So where there is a biodiversity hotspot, traditional culture is collapsing too. Yeah. There's a correlation there. I'm just thinking back to something you said earlier on yes. about this. You know, you're, try, you're saving or trying to save um, some of these cultures, these indigenous people uh, and their knowledge. And you talked about a, like a dark spirit in some of your images. Mm. Is this your reference to maybe the loss Absolutely. Of, of, of these indigenous peoples? Yeah. And, and is that a conscious decision? It is a conscious decision. Again, stepping back, it's also talking about my own personal work as an art form, but also to have a double of agenda is that there's a social project unfolding in terms of wanting to archive, almost like Joel Sartero's photo arc. It's like, I want to document all of these cultures before they change, but also I want to be a part of, if they're interested, we can help revitalize and maintain and amplify your culture. You know, I'm not going to be the white person that goes in and says you shouldn't lose your culture and, you know, stay here in the forest and don't get an education and all of those things. It's their choice. If they make the choice, we are invited in and then we work with them. Because many people, indigenous people around the world are saying, no, we're going to move to the city and our language is, is going to go away. That makes me sad because embedded in these incredible traditional languages is huge amounts of information that is valuable to all of us around the planet. And so we want to be a part of a process of archiving that and where appropriate sharing that information and letting them share it with people around the world. But to your point, yes, I'm very conscious about constructing an image and uh, the way I shoot it, the lenses I use, and then the post-production of just working with a palette and ensuring that hopefully when the viewer looks at that image is that there's, there's some subconscious stuff going on there. There's some energy there that's not bright and happy, but there's, there's a, a tone there that I want people to pick up on. Yeah, on a practical level, um, when you've identified a culture that you want to work with, how do you set about getting within that culture and right. being, being accepted? Good question. And it takes years of research. You know, any one of these places that we go to, um, there's, a, there's at least a year of, you know, purely logistics. It's like, how do you get there? Who can we work with that can take us in there? Are there any local grassroots NGOs working with these particular groups? And what we're real clear about is when we step in, I don't start photographing. I don't, we listen. And there's a certain way of respect that you give to indigenous cultures, that it's not all come on strong. You sometimes just have to sit around the fire and 
maybe not even talk. It's just you, you build up a level of trust. And on the photographic side, once I feel comfortable and I've been accepted and I do start photographing, it's, um, you know, there's an old saying, the quality of the portrait is in direct proportion to the relationship. So the longer I invest in that relationship, the more depth there's going to be to that imagery and level of trust. And can you sense the moment when you're accepted? When yeah. They, when they come to you? And when they start ignoring you and get on with life. <laughs> uh, you know, and I make an effort of, you know, playing with the kids and, and working with, with them in the fields. Or, you know, we went and worked with the eagle hunters and they just started working and working away. And I had one sort of remarkable incident that I talk about is that we were working with eagle hunters that are in western Mongolia. We were five days from the nearest road. There was nothing out there except their yurts. They did have a little generator to kind of, you know, do some different things and watch TV occasionally. So I took this fabulous, remarkable gentleman who was Mongolian. He looked right out of central casting. He had the mustache, all the traditional clothes. He had his eagle on his shoulder. And what I like to do is work with an iPad. So I'll photograph first and then I show it to them to just kind of get them going with it. So through the translator, he said, oh, I like that image. I'd like a copy. So I started bringing out my notebook and about to write down his address. He whips out his iPhone, says, no, just airdrop it and uh, I'll put it on Facebook tonight. And it was like, that's the world we live in. And it's I'm like, sure I'd know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> why not? You know, we have this kind of thing, let's not disturb them and we're not gonna add anything, but they're already doing it. You know, the world is connected. I mean, surely that, that is the nature of the human condition, isn't it? To continually evolve. And, Absolutely. And indigenous cultures are going to evolve just as they always have done. Precisely, and it, it by being a part of kind of connecting them to technology if they aren't already there doesn't mean there's a binary reaction where they're going to drop their culture. I mean, I've been in, in remarkable events around the world where they're all doing their traditional dances and, you know, worshipping their gods and they're all whipping out their phones and photographing each other. Why not? It's like this, this can work. So. so do we need indigenous cultures? And if so, why? Very good question, and I, I, I'll start off by a quote that I used in that opening ceremony. It's like Margaret Mead, the great social anthropologist, her greatest fear for her children and all of our children is that having been born into a polychromatic world, that if we're not careful, our children and our grandchildren will wake up in a monochromatic world and not know there was anything different. You know, do we really want Starbucks and Walmart and John Lewis around the world to the exclusion of this beautiful diversity? We have up in Svelvard these fantastic seed banks, you know, preserve this for if the holocaust of the, the nuclear holocaust comes up. Wouldn't it be sad if we all wake up one day and there's not cultural diversity? There's not different ways of thinking? You know, and we're in the Western world well on our way to thinking that. But these cultures have rich knowledge. They have different ways of looking at things that are truly remarkable. Wouldn't it be a sad day if that just no longer existed? Oh, definitely. By 
association, I guess, do you not feel sometimes like Knut trying to hold back the tide? Because you say it's not a binary response to introduce them to technology and they get rid of their culture. Right. But the big conglomerates like the Starbucks of the world are only interested in their final dollar count. Absolutely. And they will push and push and push irrespective of what yes. you or we or anyone else is trying to do. So how do you, how, how do you keep pushing forwards? Where, where do you see the end game of that going? Uh, I don't spend too much time on it. All I know is if I don't do anything, then I'm a part of the problem and not oh, the solution. Nice. So maybe I'm a little like Don Quixote, just blowing against the wind, but um, I'll, go, I'll go down trying. And I think what I see is this remarkable renaissance beginning to unfold with traditional culture, where you see you know, Quechuas in Peru and tribes in Africa that have been highly impacted by colonialism and every variation of that religion, et cetera, et cetera. So their, their, their grandparents and their parents, fairly traumatized, but they're suddenly realizing, wow, I want to, I'm proud to be Quechua. I want to know the dances. I want to know that. Like that Native American sitting in that cultural center going, it's because of these Edward Curtis prints that we're doing the sun dance again. So what I'm seeing is a remarkable renaissance beginning to unfold. So I think there is a way to work against the tide. You know, again, at COP26, we're hearing about all these remarkable reforestation programs and saving of species. You have to focus on that because I think that's the way forward. We don't have any other choice. But with your foundation, um, your focus is obviously on the, the cultures, on the people. Right. And we pay a lot of attention nowadays to preservation of the natural world. Right. What challenges does that present you in terms of getting your message out? And, and what role do you use just photography for that, or is language also a, a very important factor in that? Yeah, process? it's it's a combination of things because I think there's in the conservation movement there's still a kind of old thinking of, well, people are the problem. So if we create this national park, we'll just plop the people off. Well, that has caused so many problems to the Maasai and Africa, and the stories go on and on. So what's really exciting to see is that that I think the conservation organizations, the governments are realizing, okay, you know, if we're going to do this 30 by 30 thing, which is save 30% of the planet by 2030, this is a huge initiative coming out of these COPs, is let's just not do the same old colonial thing and move the people off. The indigenous people are actually saying, wait a minute, we're pretty good at caretaking. We've done this for a while. Incorporate us into this narrative and have us be a part of it. And I think that's what we're trying to push on a kind of foundation level as well. And I think the tide is turning. But, you know, as John Kerry, who's the conservation ambassador for the United States, said at COP, it's like, we will get this done, but will we get it done in time? On your travels, what's the wisest or most profound thing that anyone from an indigenous oh. culture has said about our world? Oh, well, I'll, I'll tell the story that um, I used the other day. It's like I was sitting with this elder in this tribe that had never had contact before, and I had hiked up from another valley into his valley, and 
he sort of said, which valley are you from? And I said, oh, many, many valleys away, because he'd probably never been out of his particular valley. And in fact, in New Guinea, there's over a thousand languages, very isolated groups. And he sort of was, where's this white guy from? Which valley? And he eventually smiled and he said, I know, you're from where the green meets the blue. And he'd heard this of this place that was obviously the ocean, but the mountains changed into blue. And I'd, he was sort of saying it in a way that invited me to think of the concept of the Mother Earth is just simply where the green meets the blue, the small, fragile planet spinning through the universe that we all need to lean into to save. Mm. What do we need to learn from indigenous cultures? I mean, there's obviously a lot, right. but where do we start? They all have a great sense of humor. They're always kind of trying to take the mickey out of you, which I love. Um, I think, you know, people often ask me, well, you know, these indigenous people, how can we scale up what they're doing and save the planet? Come on, Chris. And I go, that's not the point. It's like the, the key is shifting the Western perspective of consumption as if this was an, an infinite amount of funds. My friend Enrique Sala, who's an explorer in residence at National Geographic, talks about, and he focuses on the ocean. It's like, you know, we're, we're going to the ATM and drawing and drawing and drawing and assuming that the bank count is infinite. It's not. So let us start thinking about the concept of truly what it means to be sustainable, to manage our resources in a way. And I think that's the greatest message that I think indigenous cultures have in their various stories and languages is that if you respect and understand what it means to truly live off nature, then you're going to step into, I better start putting something into the bank account or not spending it so fast. Mm -hmm. And that's challenging with the population that we're, you know, I think all points lead to there's too many humans on the planet. Mm, that's not the first time we've heard that. Is it? <laughs> it is not. No, you're not the first person to have said that. Actually, no. Two data points, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's something in it. I, I don't know. I mean, I I counter that point with what is unfortunately a utopian view of something that's I feel is true but is unrealistic. In that, I'm not convinced there are too many people on the planet, but I'm convinced that there is an unequal distribution of wealth and Absolutely. resources. There's no question. And actually, if if that was addressed could we sustain the population we have or even a larger population? But at the moment, we are so divided between the haves and the have-nots right. that the have-nots are so desperate to be the haves that greed... Uh, well, I'm more to the point, the haves are desperate to be even more haves, that you just end up with this greed and corruption and everyone grabbing everything, irrespective of what money right. they're putting back in that bank. Absolutely, and, and certainly my description is is overly simplistic because I think... You know, people coming out of poverty in China or India suddenly being told, oh, sorry, you don't have what we've had for so long because it's not sustainable. So there's, there's bringing down the cap. You know, do we really need to have billionaires that are making $150 billion and counting and also to kind of regulate the expectations of the third world, if you want to call that, certainly the underdeveloped world coming into the ability. So it's a complex, and I'm, I'm 
just a photographer. I'm, I can't solve those problems, but yeah, the, the answers are very, very complex. But what's really exciting to see is you know, some of the new technologies coming along in terms of green energy and in terms of nuclear. I think we're inevitably going to have to look at nuclear again, and I think that's coming along very quickly. But you know, how do we equalize that inconsistency and then manage to have the amount of people we have on the planet. You know, we're at about 66, 67 percent of the world's population live in urban environments. They're talking about the the city of Delhi in 50 years being 100 million people. It's like, what do those cities look like? And what does quality of life and connection to nature look in a city that's 100 million people? So we have some challenges ahead. Yeah, it's interesting when you think about it. The the rapid urban growth centers are yes. more likely to break down into chaos than these indigenous communities who have done things in a certain way that works for many, many years. Absolutely. The example that I always love in terms of you know language loss and uh, preserving language, there's a tribe in New Guinea that has 25 speakers. It's a unique language in one particular area. Now that is in better shape because every single one of the children are speaking the language, as opposed to Navajo, where there's 150,000 Navajo, but the kids aren't speaking it. That's essentially doomed language, and will it's highly endangered, and it will go extinct unless more children are, are speaking it. So you've got these strange anomalies of, you know, how do you deal with that? So it's fascinating. I think it's very interesting. Just recently there was a news story in the UK, you heard this one, Chris, but down in uh, down in Cornwall, they're starting to teach Cornish in some schools yes. to try and bring that language back. Um, and so maybe it's not, you know, we think of indigenous people and indigenous right. language as being far off distant shores, Papua New Guinea, for example, uh, the outer reaches of Alaska right, or wherever exactly. it might be, but actually the southwest corner of Britain has an indigenous language that Absolutely. has disappeared and is now being brought back. And that's what I love about Great Britain. It's like you literally go into the next county and, and Olivia's mom is from, from Wales. And I remember going to Wales when I was in my teens. And now you go to Wales and everything's in Welsh. And, you know, same thing in New Zealand. I went to New Zealand when the Maori language was like, you know, you don't talk about it. Now everything is bilingual, and I come from Canada, which is bilingual French and English. So I think the good thing that's beginning to happen is, is that we can live in a multicultural world and, and live together and, and be able to communicate. Well, I mean, when I was younger, and I think it's still true today, people traveled to experience other cultures. Yes. And it's, it's getting to a point where those cultures are appreciated for their own right, not just as a tourist attraction. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And that's very important. We just had a panel on the power of photography with a number of photographers that I respect that are young, and they're in their 20s and 30s, and they've got... 1.5 million Instagram followers and we talked about the responsibility is if you're going to highlight 
this village or you're going to highlight that particular um, national park or nature, you also need to have the responsibility that you're, you can be a part of the problem if you're not careful and you're going to love that place to death by inviting people to go there. So there has to be a responsibility as we all think about, you know, how many followers suddenly you can have an impact that may not be good. So there's... It's an, seen across the board in, you know, all of the photographic hotspots for landscapes. There's almost right. tripod marks in the spots you need to go. And that is only going to increase with the, the growth of social media. How, how do you address that? How, how does that responsibility look? What, what do you do to mitigate that? It's a good question. I was driving around uh, Yosemite once with Ansel and we stopped at a particular spot and he had a chuckle because we looked down and there was someone had spray painted three circles and said, this is where Ansel Adams took that famous shot. It's like, there's the tripod marks. You know, and I told a story where um, I worked for a well-known magazine that goes unmentioned and we went in to a very isolated part of New Guinea and remarkable photographs and I said to the editors please don't put a map please don't X marks the spot well they did well I have the legacy on my hands now the blood on my hands if you will that my photographs in that magazine caused a stampede and completely affected that and from there on and that happened way back in the kind of early 90s, I said, I'm never, I have to be a part of the solution and not the problem. So, you know, I've got a new book coming out on sacred places around the world, and I have a lot of very rare um, rock art locations scattered throughout the world, scattered throughout the Southwest Desert. I don't say where they are. I can't. That's, that's unfair for them. It's the Instagram generation, isn't it? Yeah. Everyone wants to go and get that picture, that selfie, that whatever it might be at that place. Oh, yeah. Not thinking about what their impact is, but thinking about the followers that they can gain for doing so. And I've had remarkable kind of, oh, my God, moments. You know, I was in Cambodia way before any tourists. The war was still on. I went to the sunrise at, at Angkor Wat. I was the only person there. Uh, just pre-COVID, I'm sure it'll eventually get back up. We were in Cambodia and went to the sunrise and there was 3,000 people there with their Instagram smartphones getting the sunrise at Angkor Wat. I mean, that's actually such a juxtaposition from what you were saying earlier on, how smartphones maybe came from, the concept came from Ansel through Steve right. Jobs and how wonderful that is. Such a dichotomy. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's brilliant and terrible all at once. Well, exactly. And I often think, and when we're traveling, I often you know, think, God, what would Stephen Jobs think now? Somehow or another, I think he knew he was unleashing this powerful uh, tool. <laughs> yes, Pandora's box. And, you know, the optimist in me says, we'll, we'll get this all figured out and there'll be some rules and regulations. But I'm, I'm not quite sure as you hear... Mark Zuckerberg talking about the meta. It's like, do we really want to go there? No. <laughs> I, quick joke, I have to tell you. Right after meta was released, um, um, uh, the Icelandic Tourist Board released a sort of video, uh, and they had a very much a Mark Zuckerberg lookalike. It was sort of him, and he had the black shirt. He was wandering around Iceland, and he was going, in meta, 
you have one thing, but here in Iceland, come, we have real waterfalls. We have real glaciers. We have real nature. Don't go to Meta. See the real thing. Come here to Iceland. <laughs> I thought that was great. Touche. I, mean, I mean, it's a real can of worms, isn't it? And, it is. And I guess, where does it end? Because we're, we're listening to you know, National Geographic talking about the metaverse and how augmented reality and, and virtual reality. Yes. Is that, again, simultaneously problem and solution? Because you show people places, but then if you can take them there in an augmented reality version, does that stop them going there? Well, here's the, the flip side of it. I did a story in Banff, Canada, and I interviewed the, the mayor of Banff, and he said wilderness around Banff was having such a, a kind of traumatic impact from so many tourists. I decided to create a IMAX theater and have IMAX do the most remarkable kind of imagery of Banff National Park and we encourage people to go to that. So people will actually drive into Banff. They don't go on the trails as much. They go see the IMAX and go, cool, I've been to Banff. So one way of looking at it is it allows, you know, to mitigate the problem and have less people going to it. You know, we're, we're at the point in the United States, and again, I'm speaking as a Canadian, but I live there, where the national parks there'll be a four-hour wait into Yellowstone or Yosemite during the summer. It's like, at what point is that augmented meta going to be a better experience for people? I'd rather have the real thing. But, you know, if you have the U.S. population will probably double in the next 15 years, you simply can't put all those people into the national parks. So there has to be an alternative. I've heard people at the National Park say, well, we'll probably have to have a lottery system. You as a citizen will get 12 visits to the National Park in your lifetime. So we're, we're going in that direction. It's, there's too many people too on many the people. planet. Do you make more wild spaces, more national parks, so you can spread them more thinly? I think so. I think so. I mean, that's undoubtedly a good thing, right? Yeah. But, but it's obvious that more wild spaces are good, but more wild spaces to allow us right. a thinner spread of people. Right across those wild spaces is yeah. that you know a, a, like an obtuse way of looking at it I, i'm convinced elon musk's got it right just like let's let's go to mars <laughs> <laughs> take half the population right go, go well the other half send to a very distant <laughs> planet <laughs> well you've given us a lot to think about you have i've got one more question you have Far okay. away then. And it's, it's a question we ask uh, pretty much every guest that comes on, or as Chris likes to say, a question I ask pretty much every guest that comes on. And yet, in your case, it seems like a woefully inadequate question because back at the beginning of your career, you had such an incredible start. But my question is, if you could go back to the younger mm. you with everything you know now, everything you've learnt about photography and the industry and, and the world, what advice would you give the younger you very good question. Well, I think Ansel said it really well, and I mentioned it before, put off short-term gains for long-term goals if you're really committed. I think for me, another thing I like to tell students is like, you can get anywhere you want in the photographic field, but get real clear about what you're willing to sacrifice. You know, I know Steve McCurry really well. I know Jim Nockway. 
Many of us lived a very lonely life sitting in hotel rooms on the dark side of the world and going, what am I doing here? So you can do anything you want, but really be clear about what are the sacrifices. I look at working in the photographic field like the Olympics. You've got to train and train and train and train. And in a sense, if National Geographic or any other travel magazine is going to hire you, well, you've got to be better than Steve McCurry. They'll just keep hiring Steve McCurry. So think of it not as so much as a competitive sport, but just being real clear, the bar is high, but you can do it. Just be really willing to train for a long period of time and having rejections for a long period of time and be really clear about what you want to do, why you want to do it, and where you want to go with it. And I can guarantee you the good photographers aren't concerned about how many followers they have. They're driven way beyond that and have a voice and have a conviction about, you know, making the world a better place. Brilliant. A great answer. Yeah. It's been inspiring talking Thank to you, you and listening to you. And I hope our viewers will feel the same. And if any of them happen to be billionaires, get in touch with you and Olivia and make Absolutely. A yep. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, thank you. It's been a great honor and a wonderful.